Welcome back to Fintech Business Podcast. I'm here today with Alex Baden, founder and CEO at PerformLine, a platform for regulatory and compliance monitoring for brand marketing. PerformLine empowers financial marketers like Experian, Best Egg, Republic Bank, and more to ensure their marketing efforts meet regulatory requirements. Alex, thank you so much for taking the time. For listeners who might be a little bit less familiar, can you kick us off by explaining exactly what PerformLine does uh, and why it's necessary? Yes, absolutely. Great to be here, Jason. Thanks for inviting me. Um, PerformLine is a pioneer in the sales and marketing compliance space. So we often get classified as a reg tech company, regulatory technology, and we're focused on helping our customers solve one primary use case, which is that all of their customer interactions are compliant with any set of either federal or state regulatory guidelines, which I guess could loosely be classified as truth and advertising laws, but often have a product specific bent to them. So some examples would be a mortgage lender that needs to make sure all of their marketing and sales communications are compliant with mortgage advertising best practices or truth in lending act or fair lending. Um, a credit card issuer, uh, they need to follow, for example, the Schumer Act um, mm-hmm. when they're putting cards online. And it goes you know, on and on and on throughout all the subset of consumer finance products and services. Um, we built a SaaS platform to help our customers do this. And this is often used as the day-to-day dashboard for marketing compliance teams within both some of the largest banks in the world, as well as uh, more recently funded smaller fintechs and everybody in between. Um, We decided that the product go-to-market motion and build-out roadmap should be something that can help our customers stay compliant and monitor their partners across really any channel of customer interaction um, so that that started with a web module where we were crawling the web and we developed a rule engine where we could score those findings against potential compliance issues. And then we quickly realized that web marketing and, and, and web communication and web branding is just one one piece of the CMOs, um, you know, uh, marketing demand gen pie. And we needed to be another channel. So we launched a speech analytics module. We launched a chat module. Uh, we're helping customers surveil emails that are going, going out mm-hmm. on their behalf. Um, maybe two years ago, social uh, was our latest uh, expansion. So monitoring and capturing all of social posts that not only employees may be saying, but independent agents So if you are a business that has a network of reps or agents throughout the country, they're often using Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn to create some demand for the services. Uh, Maybe they're using influencers heavily to promote the brand, and we can help our customers get a sense for what's being said there and flag them to any issues that could be potential compliance violations. And then most recently, We launched our sixth channel, which we call document review, 
which is which is pretty different in the sense that it happens before the messaging goes out. So this is more of a tool to be used uh, in the enterprise, in between departments like marketing and legal review, where we can issue automated verdicts on marketing collateral uh, before it is delivered out in the wild or delivered to a customer. And we're finding that this adds a lot of efficiencies and speed to market for the customers that are using that product. You know, as a recovering or partially recovered anyway, financial services marketer, uh, this topic is close to my heart and also gives me like PTSD flashbacks. <laughs> I mean, the, you know, more than 10 years I spent marketing financial services products. Um, you know, I touched any marketing channel you can probably imagine. I mean, direct mail, you know, Google ads, Facebook ads, working with, you know, third-party affiliates. So both the very well-known sites like a Credit Karma nerd wallet, but also, you know, those are kind of the the 800-pound gorillas. You have, you know, hundreds or potentially thousands of affiliate websites that exist that that you know work to market and promote financial services products, um, you know, radio, television, email. Um, and and as you mentioned, you know, for people who haven't experienced that part of a financial services company, um, it actually ends up having a very high degree of complexity, particularly given the number of variations of creative that can exist, right? So on the one hand, you might see some, you know, see a post that uh, a bank or a lender or something makes on Facebook and think, okay, that's pretty straightforward. Um, but I mean, two very quick examples, you know, when you're doing uh, a direct mail campaign, and I'm very sorry for even saying the words direct mail, um, but you know, as as people in the U.S. credit space know, it is still a very significant workhorse in the customer acquisition, you know, direct response channel. Um, it's not like you only have one one version of that letter. You know, you might have two, four, six, eight, ten more different versions of that creative tailored to different segments. Uh, or testing, you know, creative A versus creative B. And, and so the amount of collateral that you generate and then need to review and ensure compliance on can be quite high. I mean, a more extreme example uh, would be something like ads that you run on Google search, where you could easily have, you know, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of variations of ad copy, which I remember uh, when we were first launching Marcus at Goldman, like making some sort of insane spreadsheet and handing it to like the lawyers to review. And they're just like, what, what is this? Um, so, I mean, the, the level of complexity can, can spiral very quickly when you're dealing in channels that are particularly digital channels uh, where you kind of have, you know, infinite opportunity to test, iterate, and try to, you know, revise and improve your ads. Um, I mean, for people whose eyes have already glazed over, as I've described that, um, can, can you perhaps give uh, an example of like, why is this important? Like what happens if, you know, you make a mistake or an error or an omission uh, in, you know, in supervising or ensuring compliance in, you know, the kinds of marketing programs I just described, you know, what is, 
I don't know, what's the worst case scenario of something terrible that's going to happen? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think that was a really good overview of the tip of the iceberg, even, only even though it sounded pretty extensive, of this challenge. Um, because a lot of what you described from your experience, Jason, was how complex just having control and oversight of your own brand's owned and operated content. But mm-hmm. in reality, and I think you alluded to this a little bit, in reality, you're not hitting your customer acquisition goals as a as a, as a marketer um, in this very competitive space if you are not finding other channels outside of your owned and operated media buy and your owned and operated Facebook um, messaging, right? You you have a you have a very complex network of partners and third parties who are helping you achieve those goals. Um, or maybe not. Maybe they've been deemed too risky, right? Uh, maybe the affiliate space, uh, mm-hmm. because your chief compliance officer is taking a risk-based approach and you are in charge of customer acquisition, has told you you cannot partner with the nerd wallets and credit karmas of the world or even, you know, the long tail uh, financial bloggers. Um Maybe they've told you that email creative, or you cannot use email as a customer acquisition channel. Well, what what our company can do is help you as the marketer and help the chief compliance officer understand that you can get optics and surveillance and very, very complete coverage of those channels um, that seem just overwhelmingly impossible to have a sense for what's happening. Um, so that's like a... a, a you know, for someone whose eyes may be glazed over about the importance of this, if they sit in the customer acquisition or the business side, or they're interested in the growth part of their business, which I assume the majority of your listeners are, um, perform, we think of compliance as a competitive advantage. And being able to open up channels that were previously not available to you is one uh, great example. Another would be um infusing speed into your internal SLAs. So you talked about creating direct mail and different versions of direct mail. A typical SLA uh, for, uh, for a large brand uh, might be two weeks, might, be, might, might take the marketer two weeks to hear back from legal review and compliance as to whether the seven versions of the direct mail piece to promote the new credit card with travel benefits has been approved whether it has the most updated APR and interest rate, whether there's nothing in the language that could trigger a UDAP violation. Um, And maybe it's just two weeks and everything's good to go, but there's probably some changes and some tweaks and then it needs to get resubmitted. Um, We're able to help both the compliance department and the marketing department shorten that down to almost real time. Um, mm-hmm. Now they're going to create custom workflows, and, and generally speaking, compliance review is a man-machine problem. And leveraging the technology that we've built, and from some other vendors, you can get very, very accurate. But ultimately, you know, a human, uh, an expert, uh, is likely making the call about when something is good to go. But those two use cases we've proved ten times over, and, and kind of many more around that. So. You know, if you're if you're a marketer or you're in the line of business for a financial services company and you kind of struggle to appreciate 
the value of compliance, I, I, I would question whether you're kind of missing a big part of being a marketer for a regulated company. Um, and the best customers that we have see themselves as partners with the business, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're there to help, um, help achieve the acquisition goals and the growth goals, but to do it with a risk approach and, and to minimize some of the potential um, challenges and fallout if, in fact, you know, messaging is non-compliant. And, you know, to your, to your broader question there, um, you, depending on who you are, whether you're, whether you're a bank or whether you're a fintech or a mortgage lender that might be state licensed, um, you risk, uh, and you risk inquiries and ultimately, uh, fines and settle fines, uh, and bad press. If in fact, um, you are in violation of UDAP, unfair and deceptive advertising practices. And that can really slow a business down or affect its bottom line, depending on uh, how big the penalty is and and how bad uh, it's deemed that you are potentially harming um, consumers. That uh, definitely resonates. Uh, I mean, I'm going to need some new stories at some point, but I mean, the experience working at a a true startup environment, which has you know a very perhaps different risk tolerance than uh, a bank launching a new business unit. You know, I, I've experienced sort of both sides of this um, firsthand, and I mean the the affiliate example. Just very quickly to, to go back to that is is a good one where you know if your priority is sort of growth no matter what, and you're willing to tolerate risk. You know, you go after potentially that long tail of affiliates. So it's not just the top three or the biggest five. You know, you're willing to accept the risk of onboarding 20, 50, 100, 1,000 affiliates or affiliate networks. Whereas if you're using that sort of risk, a risk reward lens that you described, it might be like, well, you know, we can supervise, you know, the biggest three affiliates and it's worth it because they have volume. But once you start getting down to the fifth, the tenth, the twentieth, you know, biggest, this is not worth the amount we're going to have to invest to supervise uh, this company and what they're saying about us or what their marketing practices are, versus the amount of traffic or the amount of customers we believe it will send to us. I mean, I think another interesting angle that uh, I didn't necessarily fully appreciate while I was in some of these roles was. There's sort of two two different things that you need to be able to do, right? You need a system or a platform to do the actual work, right? So facilitate to facilitate, you know, the marketer and the legal and compliance team and and you know, likely external third parties as well. But you also need to be able to have a documentation that that workflow happened, right? So if you are, whether it's internal audit or, you know, hopefully not a supervisory or some sort of enforcement action, you know, you want to be able to say, you know, we had our uh, compliance management system in place. You know, these were the policies. These were the risks. These were the controls for this, you know, these risks. Here's the system we had and we can show you like how this happened. And that in my somewhat limited experience is going to be a much more pleasant discussion to have with a regulator than we had no system, we have no controls, 
And we don't know how this piece of marketing ended up out in the world. We we, we couldn't even tell you if we wanted to. That is not going to be a good conversation to have. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, and in fact, maybe it was six years ago now. Um, so under the last, uh, well, it was pr- probably a little longer than that, maybe, maybe seven or eight years ago, uh, the CFPB issued a bulletin, which was, hey, here are the five things that you should be doing so that if, in fact, we do come for an examination, things are going to go a lot smoother, right? This is our expectation. And uh, a couple of the things spoke to the point, a couple of the bullets spoke to the point you just raised. And they made mention of if you're going to have a a best-in-class compliance management system, um, part of that is you need you need proof you can use. You need a, a, a single version of the truth. What are you doing when you find a potential issue? Is that is that date and time stamped? Is there a record of the communication internally or externally with the third parties? And has remediation taken place? And how can you prove that? And that was a big deal for our product roadmap. When we first started, we were doing a lot of the crawling and the scoring and we had the rule engine and we started to introduce ML and AI and there was just a ton of data being produced for our customers. And I mean like, like billions of compliance observations monthly. Um, but it was all, it was almost too much data and there was no way to really make it actionable in a consolidated format. So we double down to kind of solve that problem when we realized we needed workflow. We needed a workflow that we needed to build around discovery and remediation. And as soon as we added this layer of workflow to our platform, which became almost like an aging report of outstanding issues mm-hmm. where the compliance team could log in daily and they could say, okay, today we have five potential issues uh, that perform line is flagged for us. There are spread throughout three different uh, partners. One is on an internal microsite we just launched. Um, What are the issues? What's the record? What am I going to do about it? I'm the owner. I've been assigned the owner. And let me, uh, let me, let me see this through the remediation. And then when the regulator comes by or even internally that tell better data-driven stories at the board level, uh, that team can say, Hey, look, we had 100 open issues this month, and we've closed resolved 95 of them. Here's the, here's the record of what we've done. Um, it's indisputable. And by the way, this doesn't live in a spreadsheet that can be manipulated. This is in-system ticketing on a third party. Um, and I can get get at the data whenever I need for, for reporting purposes. So you're right. You need, you need really, you need a comprehensive platform that's helping you with the discovery and helping you with the workflow. Yeah, I mean, in... My experience, which I guess at this point is is becoming dated, but you know, particularly when it was fintech with external partners, and I did you know do some um, programs that involved a fintech working with a bank partner. A lot of that was was just conducted via email. One that was just you know, frankly, horrible. Um, not it was not you know was, you you lost track of things. You you know you're chasing people to return stuff. Um, and just as far as sort of having an audit trail or something that you can look at, um, you know, is, is not particularly uh, easy UX for somebody who's trying to track that stuff. You know, I have to imagine, um, you know, since sort of 
my day being hands-on, doing these kinds of things, the level of complexity, you know, arguably has grown significantly, um, you know, as far as sheer numbers of, you know, neobanks or fintechs working with underlying bank partners, and also with the rise of BAS platforms or sort of middleware services that sit in between a consumer-facing fintech company or non-fintech company for that matter, and the underlying bank, you're starting to get sort of more touch points or more people who may be involved in a workflow to review or approve something. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the challenges that, that this increasing complexity poses to building and operating effective compliance programs. Yeah, it's really interesting, the rise of, of banking as a service, the entry of what you might call more regional or community banks, um, how they are partnering with greater velocity to fintechs as you know, alternative revenue streams for these banks in a, in a world that's a lot more complex than perhaps their traditional banking practice uh, has exposed them to. And then over the last three years or so, maybe longer in some cases, the rise of the, of the middleware, right? The, the API layer um, that these companies are connecting banks, partner banks um, and fintechs. And there's just so much complexity, right? What, what maybe was a, a two-step hop um, between a, a, a partner bank, like a like a Cross River, um, and a fintech historically now is a three-step hop for a partner bank if they're working with a middleware company, two are in their fintechs. And then we've already talked about how many steps you know that fintech might be using uh, to to get customers, right? It's it's almost mm-hmm. so. The complexity is 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 great, um, and I think the the challenges there probably probably fall into three buckets: um, accountability, ownership, and scalability. Right. So where does the accountability lie? Where does the ultimate um, compliance burden lie? How should the communication flow between all these entities? Um, so collaboration can take place around compliance. And then obviously there's a scalability challenge here. So when we talk about accountability, um, in reality, we think every group has some form of some level of accountability, um, compl- some level of compliance accountability that that is. And, you know, this is all about protecting that risk consumer. And we can have another podcast about how, Compliance is just good business, um, but but irrespective of that, um, there are different probably you know different interpretations and depending on what the regulators where their focus is, different levels of accountability. But but most people would agree um, that the regulated entity with the bank charter is the most accountable um, for the compliance. So the partner bank, mm-hmm. and. Um, they are partnering uh, in some cases with middleware companies, right? Bass companies who often will offer um, compliance services um, to the fintechs as an additional value add. 
So not only getting them connected, but they're going to layer on a suite of services and 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 they may offer um, compliance services to those fintechs. And the and the partner banks are going to often need help there because they may not have a fifty person sales and marketing compliance team, and all of a sudden they have fifty partner banks. I'm sorry, fintechs through this middleware provider. Um, but the extent of those services and the level of accountability, you know, should should be clearly communicated to everybody it, because often it's a value add, right? And it's not intended to be all encompassing. Um, and then, of course, the fintechs themselves have some accountability. They have accountability to their bank partner. Um, and interestingly enough, you know, when we look at like complaints in areas like the CFPB complaint database. Mm-hmm. A vast majority of complaints, in fact, 87% of the complaints um, that would touch like a bank fintech partnership come through with the fintech's name on it because the end mm-hmm. consumer isn't even really, you know, they haven't read the fine print. They may have, maybe they haven't scrolled below the fold uh, and they don't know that that offer is being enabled by a partner bank. So they certainly, as a as a, as an agent or representative of their partner bank, whether it's direct to their partner bank or through a middleware provider, you know they have accountability to those to those players in the chain. Um, communication is also a challenge, right? So this needs to be a collaborative effort because of all those jumps that are taking place. So, how efficient is the communication stream? Is the is the is the fintech partner? Um, submitting for review in a timely manner their new marketing collateral is that going through an api from a middleware layer is the partner bank able to review that in a timely manner in a comprehensive way and have a record of that and get that back and that's better communication whether that's you know in a system like ours even if it's on email in person right like that is a huge challenge because there's more players involved um and those and communication really breaks down quickly when the urge to grow and expand outweighs the controls that are put in place. Mm-hmm. So, so that you know, you've got to kind of keep pace with the speed of growth. And if you were a partner bank that was adding one fintech provider a year, you, you may have felt like you had you could keep up. But if you're now partnering with middleware. Bass companies, they may come to the table with hundreds of different products, all which have different compliance requirements all at once. Um, and that brings us to scalability. And that's that's nearly impossible to do with just, just human review. Mm-hmm. I, I want to pick up on a thread of something you mentioned, which was uh, the CFPB complaint data. I, I myself have spent some time poking around that uh, <laughs> that database which I think can be a very interesting, if somewhat flawed tool. I mean, it's kind of uh, amusing, like the share of the complaints that are about the credit bureaus, for instance. I mean, I think it probably isn't a surprise that most Americans hate the credit bureaus. Um, But as an example of how the data there, I find, can be sometimes misleading, uh, is that you know if you have somebody who's like oh you know there's some there's some error on my credit report you know they'll often complain basically about everybody that they can complain about right so if they're filling this out they're saying I'm mad at you know I'm mad at the credit bureau 
I'm mad at the lender. If there's some other third party in there, like a like a servicer or something, or third party bank, you know, they'll just list everybody. Um, and so, if you're just looking at some KPI like number or share of complaints, you know, it it doesn't always necessarily paint an accurate picture of what's happening. Although it's still sort of interesting to think through the customer experience of like, well, why are what is that person's perception and why are they complaining about this? And, you know, obviously what, you know, if something, if something went wrong here, um, you know, is there, I mean, one, is there like a legal problem? And two, you know, is there uh, some action, some company in this chain can or should take to try to improve this experience? Um, And, and to your point about like the FinTech versus underlying bank, if I, understand it correctly um banks sub 10 billion in assets complaints uh about those entities wouldn't even go to the cfpb at all they would go to the fdic and so when you're sort of mining uh the cfpb information as as sort of like a source of um whatever customer intelligence market intelligence i i think one it is very interesting but two, you sort of need to to understand the context and the limitations of, of what you're looking at, um, which which any good statistician will tell you know you know know your sampling frame, understand your data quality. Um, but those caveats uh, notwithstanding, I know that uh, Performline has put together some interesting reports centered around that CFPB complaints data. You know, are there any sort of really interesting takeaways about specific product categories we've mentioned neo banks um i don't know like wallets bnpl crypto has been uh, a segment that people have been sort of discussing lately vis-a-vis like complaints and enforcement activity uh, any anything that you found particularly interesting from those sort of data sets and analysis yeah so we are in, I think this is our seventh version, um, sixth or seventh version of our annual complaint risk signal report, where we get we get deep in the data. And interestingly, it's still our number one piece of downloaded content. Hmm. And we produce a lot of content uh, around all the different regs and the verticals we service and year after year the the cfpb complaint database um risk signal report is the number one downloaded content that we have so that tells you something and i think what it tells you is that um it's not perfect the database there's certainly uh flaws in it um but i think quite a few people still subscribe to that if there's smoke there might be fire mm-hmm. and this this is signal um, there might be some noise in it, but there is signal to unlock if you can get deep in it. And I think one of the ways people get deep in it is by benchmarking. So companies will say, well, okay, it's not perfect, um, but we are in a category where complaints can be lobbed. And like some of the categories that you just mentioned, the CFPB does not take complaints on. So they, they are not, uh, as of our last report, they were not taking complaints on buy now, pay later. I do not believe they're taking complaints on crypto yet. And, and they may be taking the complaints, but they're not producing it in the database. Mm-hmm. Um, keep, keep me honest if I'm wrong on the crypto piece. You're, you're, you're deeper in that space than I am. Um, 
And even fintechs themselves is not a category mm-hmm. that they break out. So what we've done is we've been analyzing using some of our tech, like the full the full text complaints, which they do make available. And we're trying to provide that additional layer. So we can go in and determine, well, how many of these complaints are actually about a buy now, pay later offering? How many of them are about a fintech by name? And then we've created um, benchmarking data you know, in the categories that they don't necessarily report on directly by understanding the full text complaints. Um, some of the some of the takeaways from our last report that I think are kind of interesting is the people are still hurting from the pandemic. Mm-hmm. You know, like um, a lot of a lot of individuals did very well, but those are more folks like you and I probably, Jason, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. in the last couple of years or in the companies we cover. But but a lot of at-risk consumers um, are still feeling the pain uh, from the pandemic. And you, you do see that in the complaint database. In fact, complaints rose 80% in 2022 over 2021. And that's that's significant. And in fact, of all the complaints in the database, which I th- believe is six or seven years old, 25% of them in aggregate were submitted last year. So it's either they're doing a better job, the CFPB of letting consumers know this is a place to voice your complaints, or in fact, you know, which which I believe is people are definitely um, still hurting very much from the, from the pandemic and um, looking for a way to kind of express that that pain and seek seek remediation where it might be appropriate. Um, on the buy now pay later space, which I know is a, is an area you cover quite a bit in your in, in this uh, form and in others. Um, again, the CFPB is not reporting specifically uh, at at that time on buy now pay later, but we were able to find between January of 2021 and August of 2022, uh, just under 10,000 complaints were related to buy now, pay later offerings. And if we compare that, some newer financial verticals that they started to covering, that's quite a bit more than in the initial kind of phase of, um, I guess, where where a new offering becomes, you know, more mainstay. Mm-hmm. So, so that's I, I think that is interesting, and I think we'll see 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 a lot more in the buy now pay later space. Um, not just but complaints, but but uh, examinations and mm-hmm. probably settlements uh, with buy now pay later companies. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I remember at some point trying to do an analysis around like BMPL complaints. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I'm remembering this right, I found that a firm showed up the most frequently or, or quite frequently, but the complaints were related to credit reporting. And as I sh- I'm sure you know, uh, most or I believe probably actually all of the shorter term pay and for type products don't furnish to the credit bureaus. So it, it's interesting to think like, okay, we, we're seeing, or we have seen, you know, activity in in Congress, um, you know, committees, and at the bureau to encourage uh, these BNPL plans to furnish data to the to the credit bureaus for 
you know, for a number of reasons to prevent so-called stacking, um, you know, to perhaps give users uh, an opportunity to build their credit history. But it would also seem like that has the potential to generate a lot of complaints if people don't understand why data is showing up in their report, if they see you know, something in there that, that looks wrong or, or is unfamiliar to them. So uh, that's one area I'm, I'm definitely watching to see how it develops because it feels like there could be some unintended consequences. Um, I promise only one more question for you. Uh, while we're on the topic of the CFPB, you know, we're now well into Director, Director Chopra's term at the Bureau. I mean, from your point of view, you know, what have been some of the biggest changes since his appointment? Uh, and what are you keeping an eye on, either from uh, rulemaking or an enforcement perspective? Yeah, that's a great question. We're keeping an eye on this trend about expanding compliance requirements to non-bank entities. Mm -hmm. We've seen quite a bit from Chopra's team and from Chopra himself about holding other parties in the ecosystem responsible. So fairly recently, um, there was a notice about companies that receive a commission for making a, a recommendation to a fi- to a loan or a financial product or a mortgage um, mm-hmm. about some of those players recently. So that's a that's a pretty big expansion of what the CFPB is, has really looked at and enforced historically. Um, we're also seeing, you know, we've seen guidance around fintechs themselves being held to the same standard as as banks and regulated entities in the last couple of years. So, you know, those are the areas where we get a lot of questions and there's a lot of interest in understanding what best practices are, right? Because the the benefits that that these companies that are in I'd say the expansion zone of the CFPB have is they don't have to reinvent the wheel. Now, it may be new to them, and they may need to make some new hires and bring in some expertise in-house, but they really can look closely at what their, their bank partners or what the regulated entities, the ones that have true best-in-class CMSs, have been doing. Um, and they can gravitate towards that norm pretty quickly if they're connected to the right people, asking the right questions. Um, they don't have to invent the playbook, um, but they do have to get motivated to uh, to get on that path pretty soon, we believe, if they're not already. And many of them already are, and many of them have been um, investing in compliance and have wanted to be as compliant as the regulated entities. Um, but some of them, based on what stage they're at, you know, this may be new to them. No, I think that makes a lot of sense, and it's definitely an area I'm I've been paying attention to, and, and I'm curious about. I mean, um, you know, as we've sort of discussed throughout this call, where some of these these boundaries lie as far as who who is supervised, you know, directly versus not, you know, feel like they are changing. Um, and and as a result, sort of where that where that responsibility lies for ensuring compliance and, and you know liability in the event of non-compliance, you know, may be shifting as well. 
Um, and so that's going to be very interesting to watch develop, um, you know, particularly the CFPB, but but with other, you know, other areas of the uh, both federal and, and state regulatory world um, as well. Alex, unfortunately, that is all we have time for today. Um, I know that you mentioned PerformLine has a lot of amazing content, including the CFPB complaints data analysis we talked about. Where can people find that stuff and keep up with the latest that's happening at PerformLine? Yeah, thank you for having me again, Jason. It was a pleasure. Folks can keep track of what we're up to on our Twitter handle at PerformLine. We put a lot of stuff on LinkedIn. Um, We're going to have folks from our team at some of the upcoming industry events, FinTech Meetup in Vegas in the middle of March. Um, We're putting out a webinar on March 22nd about navigating the marketing compliance challenges. So I think that'll go a little deeper on some of the areas that we top that we covered today. Um, And, uh, you know, just, uh, I guess, check us out on our website, right? Performline.com. There you go. You got the plugs in. I will, uh, I will see you or someone from your team uh, in Vegas in uh, just a couple of weeks. Sounds great. Looking forward to it. All right. Thank you, Alex. Thank you. Bye. 